I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Welcome to the Midweek Show, everyone. We have two stories today, citing the Stark White Sasquatch and Man Myth, Man Myth or Beast, if my tongue would work correctly. <laughs> so Tom and I will, um, we're going to play the recordings, and then we'll be back for our commentary. But uh, Tom, you want to say a few words before we get started? Yeah, absolutely. I just want to say, uh, click the like, share, and subscribe button if you haven't done so already. And you can support Creek Devil with Patreon. We have a link in the description. All right. Everyone stand by. We'll start the recordings. Then Tom and I will return for our commentary. Welcome. This is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Sighting of a stark white Sasquatch is recalled. Franklin County, Missouri, July through August, 2004. By... Amber Nicole Hildebrandt. Franklin County, Missouri, July-August 2004, approximately 2 to 3 p.m., Hendricks Road, though I am not sure if it was North Hendricks Road or South Hendricks Road. Description. The Sasquatch was a brilliant white, long, straight, and clean hair covering from its head down to its legs, large black eyes, walks on two legs, long arms, somewhat hunched as it walked aimlessly, fully aware of our presence but unconcerned, maybe six feet tall, could have been taller or a few inches shorter, seemed to be elderly, no hair around its eyes except for maybe a few long hairs from the top of its head that hung down, very quiet, made no noise at all when it walked, was unperturbed by the dog barking, did not look at us directly until I opened the door and peered out at him. He then met my gaze, and his eyes held great emotion, such as what appeared to be sadness, curiosity, peace, and a gentleness, as well as wisdom. He was not aggressive at all, not in body, language, or facial expression, or anything else. Appeared to be searching for something on the ground. Oh, where do I start? Well, first of all, I was visiting my parents' home, which was a trailer in Lonedale, Missouri. I lived in Warrensburg, Missouri at the time, so it was about a four-hour drive to get there. Because of the drive, I would stay for at least a week each visit. I brought my four-year-old son each time as well. It was probably about 2 to 3 p.m. in the afternoon, but I only think this because, one... There was full sun, and two, my mother, who was disabled, was napping, and that is usually the time she would lay down. My son, their dog Buddy, and I were all sitting on the back deck of the trailer, 
although we referred to it as the front porch because the driveway is on that side of the house, and that door is the only one that we use to enter and exit the trailer. So the three of us were sitting here, just chatting, and something caught my attention directly ahead of me and a little ways off in the distance. I remember thinking it was a person, as it was walking, but as it drew closer I could see long white hair covering it. I had an instant instinct to get my son in the trailer, so I hurried him inside and I followed. I closed the screen door and continued to watch this thing up the slight hill and toward the trailer. I felt horrible for Buddy, who was only an outside dog, because I had left him out there and he was very scared. He had hopped down from his chair and got under it. Buddy was a brave little dog, used to helping herd cattle with my dad, but he was shaking and barking very unconvincingly at the thing that was approaching. I stood there inside the doorway and just stared at the Bigfoot, though I didn't connect Bigfoot with what I was seeing at the time, and I think I might have heard about Bigfoot only once or twice many years before. When I recounted this event to my husband, I told him that my brain was acting as a Rolodex of animals that I knew of, and nothing matched what I was seeing. I kept saying out loud, What is that? What is that? And my son kept answering, I don't know. I know without a doubt that the Bigfoot was well aware of our presence, even before I was aware of his. He, or she, though I felt it more masculine, walked what seemed intentionally in our direction, though not looking at us, and I know he must have heard Buddy barking, but he acted as though he didn't. The Bigfoot seemed in no hurry at all, and even almost like he was just out for a stroll. He continued toward the trailer until he reached a wood fence that served no fencing purpose, but was more decoration, I suppose. He stayed on the opposite side of the fence from me, but... Being that the fence was the long, horizontal pole kind, I could see him still just as easily. Again, Buddy is still barking, though not near as often, and yet the Bigfoot paid him absolutely no mind and didn't look in Buddy's direction, which was also in my direction. The Bigfoot wandered slowly beside the gate while looking down at the ground, as if he was looking for something in specific. He was slightly hunched over, but still tall, although I wouldn't guess as tall as other Bigfoot that might have been seen. I would have to go back to the fence and see for myself, because uh, I was higher up than it, and that may have caused it to appear shorter to me. However, at least three feet of it was above the fence. I would say between five foot five and six feet tall. Also, I would guess that the deck was about thirty feet away from the fence. I might have been about six feet further back, being that I was inside the trailer. Still, I consider that very close, and feel blessed that our encounter lasted for at least three minutes, maybe longer. The most distinguishing characteristic of the Bigfoot was the brilliant white long hair that it had. It seemed to shimmer in the sunlight. I have to say that it was beautiful and very clean. The details of the Bigfoot are fuzzy for me, as my mind was just constantly reeling as to what in the world I was seeing. 
I do remember being able to visually see a face at this point because his head was sideways. I was seeing his profile this whole time. Also, something about it gave me the impression that it was old. Maybe it was the white hair, maybe the slow way it was walking, maybe the hunch. I just felt it to be my elder. As he continued to walk alongside the fence, I realized that he would soon be out of my sight and on the other side of the detached garage if he continued walking in that direction. I wanted to keep watching it so badly I didn't want to lose sight of it, and I also wanted to see it without the glass interfering. So I opened the screen door, which swung out to the right, which was the direction he was walking, very slightly, in fact just enough to squeeze my head through, and had to turn my head to the right and sort of on the outside of the door in order to see him again. He was still beside the fence. The next thing that happened still brings tears to my eyes and covers me in goosebumps. I know he must have heard the screen door squeak open, because as I was turning my head to look at him, he was turning his head to look at me. This was the first time that I had acknowledged that we were even there, and that he had acknowledged it also, and he was looking directly into my eyes, nonetheless. It was an amazing moment, and I will never forget the feeling of peace and calm that washed over me while I stared back into his eyes. His eyes were big and round and black, but they had emotion within them. I saw a sort of sadness in his eyes and also a sort of kindness. I knew while we were staring at each other that he would not hurt me and was not aggressive but rather seemed very calm and peaceful. To this day, I wish I could go back to that day, that very moment, and step out on that, onto that deck, and oh, I wish I would have offered him a friendly hello. Instead, he seemed to wait to see what I was going to do, and when he realized that I wasn't moving, he turned his head back to the ground and continued to walk in the same direction. In a few steps... He was on the other side of the garage and out of my sight. So I ran as fast as I could toward that end of the trailer and into my mother's bedroom where she was still sleeping and nearly tore the curtains off the window trying to find him again. My mother was not happy with being woken up at this manner and asked what was going on and I didn't even know what to say. I didn't really know what was going on either. <laughs> LOL. My son was also looking out of the window, trying to catch a glimpse of the Bigfoot, but we didn't see him. I was hyped and rattling things off to my mother about what I had just seen, and she asked me, what was it? And I said, I don't know. She asked if it was a bear, and I said, no, it was definitely not a bear, and it was walking on two legs like we do. She asked if it was a dog, and I told her, no, it didn't look at all like a dog, and it was way too big to be a dog. I couldn't answer her questions because they were my questions, too. I can't remember much that happened directly following our conversation, such as if we stayed inside or went out to the, onto the deck or, or what we did to pass the time until my dad got home. I was very anxious to relay to him what I had seen and hopefully get some answers from him, as he worked outside on this land for a living as a farmhand, and I figured that he had to have seen it too. 
I still find it strange that my dad didn't seem shocked when I described what I had seen, yet he claimed to have never seen anything like it. He kind of acted like he didn't believe me, but he's a really laid-back type of guy, and not much gets him excited, so that well, that might have been the case. I'm really not sure, and he won't participate in conversations that my mother and I have about that day, and the Bigfoot that I saw when we talk about it in front of him. Speaking of those conversations between my mother and I, she recalls that I was terrified to go outside on the deck alone anymore. I don't remember that. I'm thankful that Buddy was there to confirm what I was seeing, as well as my son, although he doesn't remember this encounter, but does remember an encounter that I don't remember. Another thing of interest is that on one of my visits before the visit in which I saw Bigfoot, I was sitting on that same deck at night. I was very sick with a cold and sinus infection and had taken NyQuil, which made me groggy. My dad had just gotten done grilling steaks on the grill on the deck, and then he and my mom and my son all ate inside while I remained outside alone to eat my steak. My parents both smoked, so the air outside was easier to breathe than inside. I should note that the stairs to the deck were located between the trailer and the garage, from which a path around it about ten feet wide led between the trailer and garage and then out about forty feet away to a pond stocked with fish and home to the landowner swans. While I was sitting on the deck, trying to eat my steak with a stuffy nose, I got this incredibly overwhelming feeling of being watched from the direction of the pathway between the trailer and the garage. There were no lights back there, and it was very dark, but I kept looking over there and peering into the darkness. I didn't see anything, but felt uncomfortable to the point that I had to go inside. From that night on, I always sat far away from the part of the deck that was nearest the stairs and pathway. I always need to add that I was completely unaware of the fact that many people feel they are being watched when a Bigfoot is nearby, and it was years later that I was able to connect that night and the feeling of being watched to my Bigfoot encounter. Lastly, I mentioned my son recalls a sighting that I do not. One day when he and I were excitedly talking about seeing Bigfoot, as we like to do because only we both experienced it together, he mentioned that he could see the Bigfoot's hand, and he even told me it had long fingernails that were very dirty. I thought it strange that he remembered such good details, and so I asked him some more questions about what he saw. Then he said that he could see him dig in the snow like he was looking for something. Snow? That didn't make any sense. So I asked my son to tell me what happened from the beginning, and this is what he said, and still says each time I ask him to tell me. You were in the kitchen doing dishes, and I was playing with my toys in the living room. You said, Clayton, come here, but I didn't want to because I was playing, so I kept playing. Then you said, Clayton, hurry up, come here, and I ran over to you, and you picked me up so I could see out the window pointed to a white hairy man in the trees and asked, What is that? And I said, I don't know. I then asked Clayton to tell me what he saw the Bigfoot doing, and Clayton replied, 
Well, he was digging in the snow with his hands like he was looking for something. Then he would pick up grass and eat it. I asked Clayton how big he was, and he said, oh, probably about ten feet tall, but he was bent down, so I don't know for sure. I asked Clayton what happened next. He said, well, I said I wanted to get down because I was really scared. I went back in the living room and played with my toys, but I still really was scared by it. I asked Clayton what I did after that, and he said that I just kept doing dishes. Again, I do not remember any of that sighting at all, but I clearly remember that kitchen window and the view of the pine trees that Clayton said the Bigfoot was kneeling down in. I, I often did dishes for my mother because she couldn't, so that made sense. However, I didn't remember ever being down there and where there was snow on the ground. I wasn't sure what to make of Clayton's sighting. Months later, as I was going through all of my photos that I needed to have in my photo album for years, I came across pictures of some of the visits we had in Lonedale. Sure enough, many of the pictures had snow on the ground, and we had even put a Christmas tree up while there. There were pictures of Buddy, their dog, and even some of the pine trees in the yard, though I'm not sure if they are the same group of pine trees that we saw the Bigfoot in. Okay, I know this is a lot of information, but I have more yet to share. I feel this is important. It had to have been at least a year after my sighting that I was playing zoo tycoon, and one of the animals I could put in my zoo was a yeti. I didn't even know what a yeti was, so I placed one in an exhibit and saw a large, white, hairy, ape-like man appear. That was the first time since my sighting that I really gave much thought to it, and also the first time that anything I saw or heard about it resembled what I had seen that day. I quickly exited the game and started searching in the Internet for yeti. I felt like it was unlikely that what I saw was a yeti because the yeti in Zoo Tycoon needed to have a hilly, mountainous, cold, and snowy environment, and where I saw what I saw didn't match. After searching, I noticed that yetis were the same thing as Bigfoot, and that led me to learn more about Bigfoot. Within minutes, I knew that I had seen a Bigfoot that day because many of the sketches and eyewitness descriptions matched what I had seen. It was a moment of relief to finally know what I had seen, but also a moment of, whoa, I saw a Bigfoot. I was intrigued, but went about life as normal. What else could I do? We moved to Michigan in the summer of 2006, and it was either that year or 2007 that I started searching for Bigfoot again online and found the BFRO website. I became addicted read every report for Missouri and Michigan, learned a great deal about Bigfoot, and it all just made me want to have that moment to do all over again. How differently I would have acted. I submitted my report to the BFRO not long after, but unfortunately never heard back from them. Maybe my phone number changed, or maybe they just don't contact people. I'm not sure. Today, after looking at the BFRO website some more and watching videos on the BFRO YouTube website, 
I decided to search for other websites regarding Bigfoot, as I had read and visited almost every page on both sites and wanted to know more. The search results contained this website, and after reading your homepage remarks, I knew this was a website that I could trust. I've read many of the sightings you have listed, many of which are completely new to me. I watched some of the videos and even read pages and pages of stories and information such as the numerous names Bigfoot is called by all different Indian tribes. I also read your review of Tribal Bigfoot by David Polides and purchased it as well as Hoopa Project from Amazon.com today. Can't wait to read those. I appreciate all of the information you share and the credibility of your site. Thank you. By the way... As I've been writing this message, I've been mentally debating on whether or not to include things that I saw when I was a child or not. Everyone always thought I was either lying or crazy when I would tell them as a child, so I find talking about what happened and what I saw was difficult. However, as I mentioned, I've read many of those story sightings, and here I realize that stranger things have happened. I'd like to say that these things may have absolutely nothing to do with Bigfoot, but after having learned what I have, I find that the similarities make this worth mentioning. I was nine, possibly ten years old, and was laying in my bed one night, trying to fall asleep, but I kept hearing things that scared me, so I had one eye open until I could no longer keep it open, and I must have fallen asleep. On this night like many others. One of my babysitters was spending the night because my mother was, at the time, an RN who worked twelve-hour night shifts. I woke up to the sound of scratching on my closet door, which was shut, and immediately assumed my cat, Lacey Bell, had been shut in there. This really doesn't make sense at, as to why I thought that, because she seldom went into closets. I got up, without thought or fear, and opened my closet door. I was looking into the bottom of the closet, and Lacey wasn't in there, but something else was. I looked up, and way above my head were two large red eyes just staring back at me. The rest of my closet seemed to be pitch black and never-ending. I stood there frozen, terribly scared, and then took off running out of my room and toward the kitchen, just screaming. My babysitter ran into the kitchen not long after and was frightened by my reaction. I told her that I saw two big red eyes in my closet, and she was not convinced. However, she did let me sleep with her for the rest of the night. Another incident occurred after that, but I'm not sure how long after. I was, again, sleeping in my bed in my room. I had a daybed that was against a wall that had a window on it. The window was above my waist when I was laying down. The window was closed, but not curtains on it or blinds. I was sleeping when, for some strange reason, I sat straight up and looked out the window. There again were two big red eyes staring at me. I remember thinking that it wasn't possible for anything to be able to stand there and see in because my window was so high off the ground. I don't remember anything else that happened on that night, not even 
if I went back to sleep or got up to sleep with neither my brother or mother or babysitter, I do remember not feeling like I could tell anyone about this incident because of the ridicule that I got from the first time, so I kept it to myself. I may have told my best friend at the time, though. I remember she believed me about seeing the eyes in my closet. She told me it was the Grim Reaper, which I had never heard of. I cannot honestly tell you how high the window was from the ground, but I think it was possibly fifteen feet from the ground. I also think I was slightly looking down at the eyes that I saw, but can't say with certainty. Okay, as if I haven't already written a novel here, I have more to add. I don't want to leave anything out, as it can't hurt anything, and it may be of help. Two years ago, in Michigan, where I now live, during the summertime I awoke to the most haunting sounds I have ever heard. I had my bed pushed up against the window, as it was hot and we don't have air conditioning, and my husband and I were sleeping. I remember hearing the noise and slowly waking up and becoming aware of it as it grew louder and higher. My eyes went wide and my whole body tensed up and I just lay there stiff as a board, unable to speak, unable to move. The noise would go off and was fairly lengthy. It stopped for about twenty seconds and then repeat. I would go back and forth between thinking a woman was being murdered in my front yard to a little girl being murdered in my front yard to a ghost. Those three kept rotating in my head as the noise, scream, howl, cry, continued to repeat and slightly change. I remember thinking that the sound seemed to be coming from our garden, which was and is about three hundred to five hundred feet straight out from our house and my bedroom window. Believe it or not, I began to fall back asleep after not having heard the sound for a long time, but woke up in a panic again when the sound started again. This time I started to shake my husband in an attempt to wake him and said his name quietly at the same time. He was halfway awake and grumbled, What? And I said something like, Someone is being hurt in our front yard. Listen. We laid there and listened. But the noise didn't happen again. So I told my husband what the noise sounded like and how scared I was, and he told me it was probably a rabbit being killed. Well, I don't claim to be accustomed to the sounds of animals and, and what sounds they make and what are typical noises that everyone knows, so I don't know what a rabbit being killed sounds like. But I can say that I know this noise could not have come from a rabbit. It was too loud, much too loud, and sounded human at times, and then sounded spooky, for lack of a better word that really describes it. It didn't cross my mind that it was a Bigfoot at the time. It wasn't until I read that Bigfoot howls and screams, which later on, I, well, that I put the two together. I've listened to the vocal recordings of Bigfoot since then, but none of them sound exactly what I heard. The audio recordings sound more animal-like than what this did. Okay, last thing. It was winter of that same year, and there were at least two feet of snow on the ground. I noticed footprints in the side yard of our house while 
looking out a window and checked to see where they came from and where they went to. I was concerned that they went alongside our house and came right up to the basement windows, which are tall, ground-level windows, and I can see right into them without bending over while standing outside. I asked my husband when he got home if he walked around the side of the house, and he said no. I told him there are footprints out there that come right up to the basement windows, so he said he would go and look, and I went with him. One thing I noticed was the size of the footprints. They seemed very long, and I told my husband this. He disagreed and put his boot into one. It was shorter than the print, by a couple inches at least. The second thing I noticed was that there was no drag in the snow between the footprints. I wondered how anyone could walk in that deep of snow and only leave impressions of where the feet came down. The third thing I noticed was that the stride was of good measure as well. It looked like someone would have had to lean really far over and then take a step in order to make a stride that long, but how could someone do that without leaving drags in the snow? I was very concerned because it was apparent that someone has been walking next to our basement windows on purpose. The last thing I noticed was that the footprints had no determinable beginning or end. The first one I found was in between some pine trees at the front of our house, then they continued on all along the side of the house, only to stop near the back deck, which is right around the corner of the house. My husband had no comment on that either. He did call his dad, though, who lives just behind our backyard and a little down a hill, and asked if he had walked around the corner of our house. His dad said no. No one had been out there that he knew of. Not me, my husband, or my children, and it was not prints made by my dog or cats. My husband concluded it must have been a meter man. I've never been able to convince myself of that. Ugh. Now I've listed six incidents that have happened in my lifetime. I know without a single doubt that the summertime sighting was a Bigfoot. The other five I am not able to say with such conviction that they are related to Bigfoot. However, I do wholeheartedly believe my son about seeing the Bigfoot in the snow. But I can't say with certainty that I saw a Bigfoot that day because I don't even remember that at all. I feel foolish to even suggest that all of these could be Bigfoot-related, as two occurred in Smithville, Missouri, two occurred in Lonedale, and two occurred in Michigan. Has anyone ever been so lucky as to see and hear Bigfoot, or evidence of Bigfoot, that many times, and in such dispersed locations? Part of me wonders if there is any such thing as Bigfoots being drawn to certain people, and if I may be one of those people? I don't mean to sound arrogant at all, so please don't take it that way. I'm just curious if anything has ever been mentioned or studied or noticed like that before. I suppose if something like that has happened, and it is a possibility, I'd really like to know so I can prepare myself for more memorable moments with the big guy. Smiley face. This is the end of the reading. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. This story comes to us from Argosy Magazine, December 1977. It's titled, 
Bigfoot, Man, Beast, or Myth? And it is written by Jeff Williams. The number of reports from respected people, the finding of footprints in areas too remote for pranksters to expect success, lends credibility to the belief that something is out there. But what? There was a downdraft of cool mountain air following Virgil Larson as he moved down the forested slopes of Mount Shasta. Even though weighted by a chainsaw and tools, Larson moved through the northern California woods with practiced ease. He was a timber faller and had worked in the woods for 30 of his 47 years. His partner, Pat Conway, was off to the left and Larson could no longer see or hear him. At the base of a towering Douglas fir, Larson sat down for a quick smoke. It was 8.30, Friday, September 3rd. As he smoked and enjoyed the cathedral solitude of the forest, he heard the sound of someone moving toward him from above, the sound of feet breaking the carpet of twigs and underbrush. Idly, Larson looked up and saw a figure moving easily toward him through the light-patterned woods. Hmm, must be the Forest Service guy coming down to check what we're cutting, he mused to himself. He glanced back at the figure which had closed to thirty feet, but was moving away at a tangent. Thinking the ranger had missed him, Larson yelled. At that, the figure turned his head toward Larson as if seeing him for the first time, but kept moving away in long, swinging strides. Larson yelled again at the tall figure as it dropped down the ridge a little and disappeared behind a screen of trees. Larson began to get to his feet to see where it had gone. Abruptly, a few dozen feet below him, the tall creature rose from behind a bush and stared balefully at him for a long second before disappearing. <laughs> at that moment, I realized I didn't know what the hell I was looking at. And that's when I took off. Larson, a normally quiet and reserved man, ran in terror down the other slope to his partner. Together, he and Conway returned to where Larson had been sitting. That was when they first became aware of the stomach-churning odor in the forest. Well, it smelled rotten and rancid like an old bear hide, Larson recalled. To estimate the creature's size, Conway went behind the bush where it had been, only by pushing his hat up on a stick could he be located behind the bush that the creature had easily looked over. It had to be about seven feet tall, but I don't know what it was, Larson said. I can only remember it looking over the bush, and I knew it wasn't a bear. Bears don't walk through the woods on two feet. I can only remember from the hairline up, just dark hair pushed straight back. I can't remember the face at all. Larson studied the burning cigarette between his fingers and quietly admitted he lies awake now wondering what he saw. Was it Sasquatch? The giant ape-man that thousands believe stalks the vast mountainous forest regions between Northern California and British Columbia? Larson just shakes his head. The shock of seeing something so strange has blanked his mind on the subject. Larson's foreman when questioned about the reliability of his faller, was blunt. Let me put it this way, said Ralph Gant. If Larson told me he had seen Jesus Christ, I would believe him. 
Sergeant Walt Bullington, the deputy sheriff who investigated the sighting, said, I think he's telling the truth, and as he knows it, he's not falsifying. Larson is just one of numerous reliable men who have spent years in the woods and have nothing to gain but the scorn of fellow workers who admit to seeing that giant hairy creature commonly known as Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Unquestionably, there are mistaken sightings and outright hoaxes, but the number of reports by respected men finding of footprints in areas too remote for pranksters to expect success lends credibility to the belief that something is out there. And that something is generally reported to be about seven feet tall, covered with dark hair and virtually no neck. It has massive shoulders. Obviously, is heavy and leaves man-like footprints 14 to 18 inches long and 8 inches wide. The reports are not just a new fad. In April of 1840, the Reverend Elkanah Walker, missionary to the Spokane Indians, wrote a long letter to his superior filled with misgivings on the future of the Indians. They seem as fated to fade away before the whites as the game of their country. In closing, he added this surprising note. I suppose you will bear with me if I trouble you with a little of their superstition. They believe in the existence of a race of giants which inhabit a certain mountain off to the west of us. They say their track is about a foot and a half long. They will carry two or three beams on their back at once. They frequently come in the night and steal their salmon from the nets and eat them raw. If the people are awake, they always know when they are coming very near. By their strong smell, which is most intolerable, it is not uncommon for them to come in the night and give three whistles, and then the stones will begin to hit their homes. Since that early report, stories of Sasquatch have become legend. One of the most controversial pieces of evidence surrounding the creature centers on a short length of 16-millimeter film shot in 1967 by a rancher named Roger Patterson. Patterson, now dead, said he and his partner, Bob Gimlin, were looking for Bigfoot along the rugged Bluff Creek in northern California when their horses suddenly spooked. Patterson was thrown, but struggled to his feet, with camera in hand to make a jerky film of what appears to be a female Sasquatch moving away rapidly at an oblique angle. The creature turns and looks toward the camera, and her ponderous, hairy breasts are visible. Precisely because she had no hair on her breast, the film was rejected by many scientists who note that even on gorillas there is virtually no hair. Also, it walked in an upright manner that was unacceptable to most scientists. It was a powerful, rolling gait of considerable speed, yet it did not run. However, even the specialists at Disney Studios could not prove the film a fake. A group of Soviet scientists, who are searching for their own Bigfoot, which they call, more accurately, a relic hominoid, viewed the film and agreed that because of the size of the muscles rippling visibly beneath the hairy coat, it was not likely faked wrote Dr. Dmitry D. Donskoy, chief of the chair of biomechanics at the USSR Central Institute of Physical Culture in Moscow. 
with all the diversity of the locomotion illustrated by the creature in the footage. Its gait, as seen, is absolutely non-typical of man. Apart from the film, footprints with the distinctive hourglass outline are the only tangible evidence that such a creature, a giant creature, may in fact exist. And those footprints trouble the highly scientific mind of Dr. John Napier, a visiting professor of primate biology at the University of London. In his book, Bigfoot, Napier studied hundreds of samples of the broad prints and said, there is a curious and persuasive consistency about the hourglass footprints. They present an aberrant but nevertheless uniform pattern. This is hard to reconcile with fakery. Napier, a specialist in the anatomy of ape and human feet, also studied casts from a set of prints in Bosburg, Washington, that stretched half a mile. Napier was surprised to find that the right foot was a club foot, possibly the result of a crushing injury in childhood. It is very difficult to conceive of a hoaxer so subtle, so knowledgeable, and so sick, who would deliberately fake a footprint of this nature. I suppose it is possible, but it is so unlikely that I am prepared to discount it. Napier concludes by saying, I am convinced that the Sasquatch exists but whether it is all that it is cracked up to be is another matter altogether. There must be something in Northwest America that needs explaining, and that something leaves man-like footprints. The evidence I have adducted in favor of the reality of Sasquatch is not hard evidence. Few physicists, biologists, or chemists would accept it, but nevertheless it is evidence and cannot be ignored. This conclusion, even from such an eminent scientist sticks in the throat of Dr. William Montagna, director of the prestigious Oregon Regional Primate Research Center, in a scathing denunciation of the Sasquatch legend and its investigators, Montagna wrote in the September Primate News, Fascinated by the unknown and goaded by his imagination, man is forever fabricating devils and saints. Nothing is to be gained by arguing with believers. Incapable of sifting reality from fantasy, they swear to have seen the footprints of Bigfoot or of the abominable snowman, Yete, and to have heard their chilling roars. Even the tricksters who would perpetrate these outlandish hoaxes sometimes come to believe in their reality of their creatures. Montaigne appears unwilling to at least keep an open mind on Sasquatch, but other eminent scientists are pursuing their investigations. Edward W. Cronin, Jr., a zoologist who spent two years in the Himalayas looking for the Yeti, concluded it had to exist after awakening one morning to find a clear set of prints in light and unmarred snow outside his tent. The Yeti, which may be a smaller, distant relation to the Sasquatch, passed by Cronin's tent and proceeded down a steep and dangerous slope that made it evident to the zoologist that the creature was far stronger than he was. He concluded in an article for the November 1975 issue of The Atlantic that, based on this experience, I believe there is a creature alive today in the Himalayas which is creating a valid zoological mystery. 
As evidence mounts that both a Yeti and a Sasquatch exist, the question of what exactly it is becomes more pertinent. The leading contender in the minds of a few scientists is Gigantopithecus, a massive creature that existed as late as 500,000 years ago in the Himalayas and China. His few fossil remains indicate he was more than seven feet tall. Dr. Paul Simons, the senior physical anthropologist at the University of Oregon, told me in an interview that it is conceivable that Gigantopithecus crossed the land bridge at the Bering Strait, just as man did some 50,000 years ago. My basic feeling is there is no such thing, but I'm not willing to rule it out, Simon said. He then added a fascinating bit of evidence that Gigantopithecus might have migrated while other primates, like the gorilla, remained in the tropics. He noted that chimpanzees and gorillas wear their teeth down similarly, and that Gigantopithecus and early man wore their teeth down in the same fashion. So it looks as though there is a similar jaw action, Simons said. Does that mean they went looking for similar food? At least it means their dietary adaptation was not similar to the chimp and the gorilla who stayed in the tropics, but it's hard to go beyond that. He said if there is something roaming the great northwest forests, why hasn't someone found conclusive proof? Skeletal remains, hair, or fossils? Such questions make thousands of skeptics react like Dan Mott, a rancher who has spent most of his 42 years hunting and fishing in the mountains of California. Eh, Bigfoot is just a bunch of crap. With all those hunters out there every year, someone would have found one or shot one by now if it was really there. One man who ardently believes both that Sasquatch is in fact out there, but should never be shot, is Peter Byrne. A Britisher, actually, he's Irish, in his early fifties. Byrne has all the rugged looks of a professional game hunter, which is precisely what he was for twenty years in Nepal. Then, beginning in 1962, he made two expeditions in search of the Yeti. Although both failed, Byrne became convinced the Yeti existed. Then, at the urging of Texas oil millionaire Tom Slick, Byrne came to the Northwest to use his hunting skills in finding Sasquatch. For six years, Byrne has continued his lonely search. What he terms the ultimate hunt, but... Now, instead of a rifle, he carries a camera. From the modest trailer he calls home in the Dalles, Oregon, Byrne points at the dark coniferous forest that begins not far away. Once you go fifty feet into those forests, you simply disappear. It is as dense as any jungle, and we're dealing with a nomadic group, or individuals who stay in an area only one day before moving on, this adds to the difficulty of finding them. Byrne notes that the soil of the Northwest is too acidic for fossils, and that if a Sasquatch did die in the forest, other animals would eat it and scatter the bones within days. With only a handful of the creatures around and thousands of square miles of extremely rugged mountains, it is conceivable for Sasquatch to remain largely invisible. One only has to recall Ishii, the last of a stone-aged Indian tribe who remained hidden with his family in a canyon only eight miles from Oroville, California in the early 1900s until he voluntarily appeared. The Tassaday tribe, 
another Stone Age people, were found in the Philippine jungles only in 1971. The mountain gorilla was not proven until 1902. Byrne, who has never seen or heard a Sasquatch, has seen 16 separate sets of prints that he, a veteran tracker, believes to be the real thing. If he feels sure that the Sasquatch are out there, why continue to hunt them down? It doesn't seem important except for one reason. We're not going to get protective legislation for something that is not proven. When it is known to exist, there will be expeditions, and some scientific expeditions can be awfully ruthless. We hope there will be full protection to the point where even a scientific expedition from the Smithsonian Institution will not be allowed to collect a specimen. Another veteran Sasquatch hunter is George Haas, a scholarly 70-year-old man who lives in an Oakland, California apartment filled with books and files on Sasquatch. Haas has the most extensive files on Sasquatch in the country, 3,000 news clippings alone. Like Byrne, he is strongly opposed to any talk of killing a Bigfoot just to prove it exists. The last thing we need to do is shoot or even capture a specimen. It is more than a rare animal. It may be a primitive man. To kill him would be murder. Indeed, why find him at all? To protect him, some argue. But if Sasquatch is proven to exist, there will be massive hunts by amateurs and professionals alike. It seems all too conceivable that the pressure of organized drives for Sasquatch, complete with helicopters and listening devices as used in Vietnam, would force the creature totally out of the area or into extinction. Find Sasquatch? To what end? So he could spend his life behind bars in a zoo? or be constantly probed and prodded by scientists, made cranky because they will have to rewrite their concepts of evolution? If Sasquatch exists, and the weight of evidence that he does is too much to ignore, then it seems best to let him and our dreams continue happily apart. We may find that we enjoy the legend of Sasquatch much more than the smelly beast itself. Copyright Argosy Magazine, December, January 1977. This is the end of the story. Thank you for listening. And we're back. I hope everybody enjoyed those two stories. Uh, I'm going to start with the sighting of a stark white Sasquatch as recalled first. And then Tom will come back and he will discuss the other story. But, you know, and, and as usual... I like everybody out there who listened to those stories. It's up to you what you think about the stories. But I read through this one, and and I had some, there were some points that sort of stood out. One of them was, um, first of all, I guess, let's talk about the description of the creature. Uh, the Sasquatch was brilliant white, long, straight, and clean hair, covering from its head down to its legs, uh, large black eyes, Walked on two legs, long arms, somewhat hunched as it walked aimlessly. Uh, aside from the aimless part, you know, that could fit many sightings. But the lady said it was only about um, maybe six feet tall, could have been taller, could have been a few inches shorter. 
I'm not sure how she gauged that, you know, if it walked by something and she did talk about going, going by a fence, but so maybe that's how she gauged the height. Um, the long white hair, I, I don't know of any, I, I've seen a Sasquatch that was gray and it definitely wasn't aimless. So I, I don't know about this one. Of course, there are different variations, could be a unique individual. There's lots of things. I mean, it doesn't really fit the mold of a lot of, and even she admits that uh, in the story that it could have been, or that most are taller. But um, she said that it didn't pay any attention to the dog barking and didn't really pay attention to the trailer until she opened the door to peer out. Um, Then he met my gaze with his eyes held great emotions, such as what appeared to be sadness, curiosity, peace, and gentleness and wisdom. Uh, not aggressive at all. So um, that's an interpretation, of course, on her part. But uh, that aside, there were a couple of points that I wanted to bring out, and there was um, her and her four-year-old son. Now, I don't know how you know good the memory of a four-year-old is, um, but there were two different incidents that she brings up later in the story. This first one where the, she saw this white creature... Um, and there was, that was a situation that the son didn't remember at all, but she did. And then apparently there was another incident where she was looking out the window and the son recalled that, but she had no memory of it. So I, I'm a little bit lost on, you know, why the, there were two, the two witnesses together. One remembered one situation, the other one didn't, and then vice versa with another situation. So, um, and then she talked at the end about, having gone into a closet and saw above her these glowing red eyes and then saw the eyes that un-Bigfoot, non-Bigfoot related. But um, anyway, um, very odd story. So it's up for you, up to you folks uh, to decide what you think about it. Tom, what are your thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the two red eyes in the closet... <laughs> well, when she thought I this one out of the closet, she thought the Sasquatch was elderly, and I'm not sure how she came to that. The white hair, maybe I don't know. Maybe, yeah. Uh, when when you know talking about the the white hair on this thing, I was thinking, well, um, I mean they they do you do get the ones like what what you oh, saw sure. with silver and all that, yeah. But the the non Bigfoot stuff, you know, the the eyes in the closet. Um, I'm I'm actually wanting out of the whole house at that point. Yeah, I think if I saw red eyes in the closet, I'd uh, they'd be seeing the seeing the, my, the back of me going out the other way. <laughs> About Mach two, yeah. So <laughs> I was looking at my nose to see if I'd written down the second situation she saw saw the red eyes another time too, but I don't recall. But um, anyhow. It's it's an interesting story. It's an interesting story, that's for sure. Uh, man, myth or beast is a is a great story, and that one I, I you know it had a lot of elements in it uh, that we see and we've talked about time and time again that are the repeating patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like the fact that he starts off and he says, you know, Bigfoot tracks in areas that are too remote for pranksters to expect success or enjoy the benefits 
of seeing their victims get hoaxed. Actually, that's the last part I put that in. But, you know, that's the very first set of footprints I saw. No, 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 no. Those were not hoaxed. Those were Bigfoot tracks. There's, trust me, nobody's there anywhere near that place. So, Well, my thought about that is if you're going to hoax tracks, don't you want to put them someplace where they're going to have an effect, where people are going to find them? Exactly. If they're remote, how, how do you know that's going to happen? Right. And these had been there for some time because they had little little bits of, uh, a couple of them had a little shoots of something, you know, some sort of a scrub starting to grow out of it. So it had been there for an extended period of time. Um, but it, I really enjoyed that. That was I thought that was great. The description of the creature was very accurate. The coloration was very accurate. And the uh, there was a Reverend O'Connell Walker who was a missionary to the um, Yakima, I believe is what he said. I got a good memory tonight, but it's short. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, they also, everything they talked about, and this is a guy in 1840, so what, 20 years before the beginning of the American Civil War. Um, you know, he's talking about the, the, the natives talked about the strong odor, 18-inch tracks. These things would steal their fish at night. Uh, there was whistling, throwing of stones at the houses. All the things which still happen to this day. Yeah, all the common elements. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was, uh, it was a great story, good account, and honestly, I think that's what prompted you to start this whole Bigfoot in history. Was we get a a forward view and a backward view of these creatures? Yeah, I, I don't think people really grasp the similarities over time and geography. I've said that before. Time and geography. If it was a hoax, it'd be a localized thing. It might be a series of things, but it would be more of a locale or one locality, or maybe two. Um, but you have, you know, we have native folks with a long history and widespread. And you know, then the other people that came into the country, the you know, the white settlers uh, who've had sightings, you know, from. Uh, as early as I think the oldest one that I'm aware of was 1811, a documented story. There may be older ones. In fact, there are actually. Um, that was that was something John Green mentioned in one of his books, the oldest one he found. But I've actually got a couple of books that have much older uh, recounts of you know these things happening. So, yeah, definitely. So I guess um, I guess that's about it for this session, huh, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, again, if you if you like this content, you can click like and subscribe. And if you want to support the channel, uh, you can do so. We have a link in the description. Absolutely. We have a good story for next week. I won't say what it is. Uh, we'll just let everybody surprised. And uh, stay tuned for the weekend show, folks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, 
please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open now.